From the studios of WGMU in Fairfax, Virginia, this is Loose Vegan Indeterminate. Loose Vegan Indeterminate is the podcast of the Economic Society at George Mason University, a registered student organization committed to guiding students, organizing events, and provoking discussion to amplify George Mason's reputation as a destination for economic students. I'm your host, Dominic Pino. Co-hosting with me today is Marcus Shera. Our guest today is the one and only Nick McFadden. I said it right, right? That's right. There's only one D. One D. One D. Nick McFadden, not McFadden. Yes. Uh, Nick is the former president of Econ Society, and this is his, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I believe this is your first post-presidency media appearance. Yes, that's the only one so far. That's awesome. That's awesome. So how's the uh, construction of the presidential library going? Uh, It's going pretty good. A little bit of a, you know, it's government expenditures, you know. Sure. It's a little uh, inefficient. Where's it going to be? You know, that's a good question. Is it is it going to be one of those? Is it going to be one of those like little free libraries by the on the side no, of the road? You know, you know how they said they were going to build an Amazon headquarters in uh-huh. Arlington? Not anymore. Not anymore. Okay, that's my makes library. Sense. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Well, uh, what are you what are you really up to these days uh, in your post presidency in, in your post your post graduation career? So uh, after I graduated in the spring, I was interning with uh, Professor Kevin McCabe at the Arlington campus doing experimental economics with with ISIS. Yes, with ISIS. ISIS. I am a proud member of ISIS. Good, good. For those of you, for those of you listening who, who might not know, uh, it's I C E S, which is the Institute Interdisciplinary. Oh, Dis- sorry. Interdisciplinary Center for Economic Sciences. There you go. Yeah, but the abbreviation, when pronounced, doesn't come out very well. It's a pretty old group. Yeah. So yeah, because you guys were around before the terrorists. Well, I wasn't. Or excuse me, the the austere religious scholars, which I believe is what we're supposed to be <laughs> yes, calling them now. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, but anyway, so you were so you were with ISIS with 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 with, uh, with Professor McCabe. Yeah, and then after that, which is now, I'm currently with the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities as an intern for the Family Income Support Team. Mm-hmm. And what do they do? So we work primarily on TANF policy, which is the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program, which is just a sort of welfare program for uh working fa- or families that are out of work and it's like a short-term program mm-hmm. that gives them cash assistance and work assistance okay so you guys uh primarily a, a research group right or research and advocacy and advocacy so yeah. you do both okay uh and that's a more that's a more progressive group right that's correct yeah that's what i thought it focuses the center focuses primarily on low-income individuals okay and so what's your day-to-day what's your day-to-day tasks there like what are you doing there so we'll just often work with uh, government data health human health and human resources data services data whatever mm-hmm. um, analyze that data see how spending priorities have changed in year after year um, see how people in need are being served and we'll also work with state level advocates to push forward for changes to their local uh, TANF legislation. Because TANF is a federal program, but it's a block grant, which gives states a lot of uh, discretion in how they construct their programs. Okay, so similar to Medicaid then? or Is Medicaid a block grant yet? Medicaid is run by the states. Okay, then yes. Medicare is not. Oh, yeah, and that's okay. a controversy on its own. It is. It is indeed. Um, so you're... I wouldn't call you a left progressive. That's not that wouldn't be fair, would it? I mean, it depends on what you consider progressive. If you consider progressive someone who will actually achieve progress in 
policy, then maybe. Well, last time I heard, Nick, from what I remember, you call yourself a neoliberal, right? So could you give us a little bit of of a rundown? What is a neoliberal to you? How is it different than a classical liberal? How is it different than a normal left liberal? So this is a very good question, and there's a lot of ways to go about it. So first and foremost, I think one of my central tenets of neoliberalism, and maybe it's more of a left neoliberalism, is that the marginal utility of wealth is diminishing. So if you give a dollar to a billionaire, he says, what are you doing wasting my time trying to give me a dollar? If you give a dollar to someone who has no money, they're like, thanks, I could really use that. So basically, money is more useful to people of lower incomes. So I generally am fond of redistribution. But I also really, really, really like free markets because they're the mechanism by which countries and economies grow, and it's the absolute best way to bring people out of poverty. So you'd think, okay, these, these ideas might be in conflict one an- with one another. Redistribution in free markets. Hmm, doesn't sound like free markets. Well, there's reason to believe, in my opinion, that redistribution isn't really anti-market. Government control of our decisions we make, so socialism or governments deciding how we use our resources, is a bit different than just a transfer of resources. So if the government says we are going to implement rent controls or we're going to restrict zoning in this certain area or we're going to limit the number of immigrants who enter the country or you are going to, going to not be allowed to sell to this country or buy from this country or you're restricted on the amount that you can buy and so forth, that is government planning. It's difficult to do successfully. It's the knowledge problem, as Hayek put forth. I think there's a lot less planning involved when it comes to redistributing wealth. It's not necessarily from a wealth tax, but just transfers. Well, I'm glad you brought up Hayek there, Nick, right? Because um, Hayek, this is actually, what you're talking about is similar to a critique that uh, Hayek had of John Stuart Mill. And uh, Hayek thought that John Stuart Mill made this big mistake in economics, where he separated economics into multiple questions. One, the production question, and then two, the distribution question, as if they're separate activities in the economy. But what Hayek stressed to point out is that labor markets and productivity are very closely related to each other, and they're related to how the income of an economy gets distributed, the labor market itself, right? So what Hayek noted is that if you have um, a progressive income tax system or different um, programs that target different income groups or target you based on the kinds of activities that you're doing, it's going to distort prices and it's going to screw with the markets in ways that you, you, you wouldn't really anticipate. And that's why Hayek more or less advocated for something that we would call a universal basic income <laughs> nowadays, but... It's not. It's not as as um, e- even then he had his own reservations about that. There's going to be problems with that. So what do you think about um, on based on what Hayek's thoughts on the issue were? A universal basic income versus maybe a, a progressive uh, taxation schedule. So that's a very good question. Um, basically, you're going to want to consider whether or not the costs associated with these distortions from progressive redistribution are greater than the waste that you're producing of from a universal basic income system, right? So like I said, the marginal utility of wealth is diminishing. 
if you have a universal basic income, you're giving a lot of redistribution to people who don't really need it as much as people as as much as people in the lower income brackets. So you'll have to take that into account. Mm-hmm. But it's my belief that it's probably a lot cheaper and not too distortionary to just redistribute to people at the lower income levels. We're recording this podcast on Monday, November 4th. So we're recording this the day before Election Day here in Virginia. It'll come out on the 8th of... Yeah, it's... I did that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Since this year is a year, it's an election year in Virginia because uh, they vote in the odd number years for for state house. But anyway, um, this podcast will come out on, on Friday the 8th, but... Since it is Monday, November 4th, I have to mention, because we're talking about UBI, I was just at the Andrew Yang campaign event here on campus in the Center for the Arts, and I got to say, it was pretty surprising. He filled up the Center for the Arts. We're talking Andrew Yang. He's polling, you know, below 5% everywhere. Um, he's a guy most people haven't heard of. It was standing room only in there. It was standing room only in the Center for the Arts. Um, he filled it up. People were excited. Like a true politician, he showed up to his own event like 45 minutes late. So I was like, I was like, I was just sitting there. I was thinking, this is the day Andrew Yang becomes president. I mean, he's showing up to his own events 45 minutes late. He's a real politician now. And the campaign staff was seamless. The volunteers were, I mean, it was, it was honestly, it was honestly pretty stunning. But he's big on the UBI. He's big on the UBI. Um, by the way, I, I should, I should mention, I'm not, I didn't go to the event because I'm, huge Andrew Yang supporter but I went to the event because it was fun uh and I kind of wanted to see what was going on kind of wanted to see what a Andrew Yang event was going to be like but uh he he's a big big fan of the UBI as we all know wants to give everyone a thousand dollars a month he'll never let you hear the end of it he seems to believe it's the solution to every problem um even mentioning it in a foreign policy question in the last debate so uh yikes um but I think that I think that the fact that that idea is catching on, that this idea is catching on, that our economy is not set up for people's success and that it's not set up for that and that we need to kind of like change it to make it set up for that. Is that something that you'd be sympathetic to? Is that something, I mean, I know for sure it's something that the CBPP would be sympathetic to, but is that something that you would be sympathetic to personally and in terms of, um, in terms of we need to reorganize the economy? I don't think we need to reorganize the economy in the nature of changing how markets work. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's what you mean either, of course, because Yang doesn't want to do too much to the economy. He simply wants to give everyone $1,000 a month. Um, I think there's a lot about Yang's belief regarding UBI that I agree with in terms of related to redistribution generally. I think that when people are given a uh, an increased income, they're much more able to uplift themselves out, out of poverty. Mm-hmm. And there's probably a contingency po- sort of point at which they can just make decisions that they otherwise couldn't that can better themselves. So I, I, I kind of like to think about it almost like a sort of why nations fail kind of thing. If you improve people's like life situations, it's not going to immediately cause them to make better decisions or to have a higher income mobility, but there might be these contingent points in their life where they're better able to respond and create something for themselves. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't really see the point of giving $1,000 to 
the many, many millions of people who are doing just fine. Mm -hmm. On another point, I also believe that um, this is sort of my arguments against pure libertarianism, that there's a lot of inequity in the economy that comes from history and and of course you know rent seeking and so on and corruption but um at the center we talk a lot about racial equity and in principle i'm very fond of the idea of reparations so and of course african americans are some of the people who are harmed most by what yang would describe as an economy that's not working for them and i think that's because of history so i have this i guess allegory that i find very convincing to myself i thought of it randomly it's probably inspired by a bunch of other things i've heard but i think i try to do like a little thought experience experiment to uh imagine the strifes of african-american communities because when you talk to people about this stuff they become really defensive white people i mean and they just they're upset saying oh i didn't do anything to them uh they weren't enslaved they weren't under these institutions that were totally corrupt and harmful to them of course not but they descend from people who were so say you have two people in this thought experiment right and they both have an endowment of like a thousand dollars or something right ubi right whatever so at time every zero month. every month well no oh so okay. just at time zero okay. initial endowment of <laughs> one thousand dollars right and then say time 100 is the end time of this period. So for person one, you allow them to invest their money as soon as they want, right? And so they invest their money. For person two, you restrict them from investing their money till say the period's halfway over. Who's going to have more money? Person one, obviously. So when you enslave people for hundreds of years, they lose out on that community development, that those resource developments that they could have otherwise have. And it's not just simply like restricting their ability to invest in themselves. It's also punishing them directly and harming them directly. Right? So you have this unfree market for a group of people. How do you reconcile that with when you go to a more free market for them, right? So a free market is great and we have a lot of opportunities in principle, right? But it's difficult for them to access because of this history. And I'll be the first to say that the institution of slavery is the least market-based thing I can imagine mm -hmm. because you would, you would think the most fundamental property you own is your own personal capital, right? So reparations would be something difficult to do, politically unpalatable for most people, but I definitely think it's worth considering in principle. Mm -hmm. And then that also just inspires me even more to think that wealth redistribution is valuable. And I mean only to an extent. Mm -hmm. So it, it's not like giving people so much money that they'll be indifferent between, totally indifferent between working a good job and doing nothing. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to incentivize work so you can give work supports as well so people can upli uplift themselves out of, out of poverty. So not just money, but also training and resources. Mm -hmm. In defense of the libertarians on this, there are many libertarians that are in favor of reparations. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean uh, Robert Nozick, the famous libertarian philosopher, made one of the strongest academic cases for it, I think. Um, I do think it becomes tricky, though, because of if you if you look at 
who's you know in theory everything you said is 100 percent correct um but who are you going to take the money from because for example my family was in italy during slavery in the united states so what am i gonna am i gonna be paying for this yeah well if you're wealthy enough if i'm wealthy enough i mean you would like you'll likely be wealthy enough to be paying into the tax system hopefully i I don't think you're gonna be (laughs) well i mean i mean the bottom half the bottom half of this country pays no income yeah so i mean that's a that's a problem in its own and you probably want to fix that yeah with a variety of means but yeah so for one there's an argument to be made that white people and people of any race aside from the african-american race uh or the black race have benefited as a result of these inequities Mm -hmm. that probably doesn't that benefit probably doesn't equal the costs put on these people that were harmed right no so it's not like and the cost on the southern economy as a whole. I mean, the South was poorer than the North yeah. as long as slavery was around and many years after. And, so, yeah. and, and because when you have half of the people um, in your, you know, not half of the people, but a, in a large number of the people in your in your territory don't have the basic freedoms that humans should have, that's a recipe for poverty. Yeah, so <laughs> that's another reason why slavery was an anti-market system in my opinion. Exactly. Yeah, and in the South, I mean, people don't realize the South was, in many respects, for much of this country's history, a, a third world country within the borders of the United States. It's not anymore. No, not anymore. <laughs> Certainly not to the extent. No, not at all. Um, Just joking. Yeah, they've advanced. They advanced tremendously, especially. But uh, people don't realize that advance really didn't fully. They really didn't fully make it until like the eighties, like the nineteen eighties. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, in terms of catching up with the rest of the country. On stuff like that, because slavery, yeah, it just it wrecked. It, it, I mean, obviously the burden was most felt by the the enslaved people, but um, it wrecked the economy as a whole. You had the plantation owners; they were wealthy, but if you weren't a plantation owner, you weren't wealthy either. Um, so, yeah, I, I I definitely think this is this is certainly you know a, a unique thing. Uh, it's a unique thing in American history to talk about, and um, I think we'd profit from thinking about it and talking about it more. So. Uh, what do you, so, so we mentioned before Andrew Yang, we mentioned that a little bit. What, what, what are your thoughts on the presidential campaign so far? It's pretty disappointing. Yeah. Like all of the people who have gotten attention aside from maybe Yang are pretty (laughs) disappointing. Uh Uh-huh. Warren, her plans, while they are thought out, they're not well thought out. Yeah. Um, I mean, she know, she only promised that she had a plan. Yeah, no, that's actually her biggest problem right now is she's coming up with plans <laughs> that are really bad. And if she's going to win the primary election, she's going to have to roll them back a lot, mm-hmm. which just shows some sort of lack of principle, right? Because I just cannot feasibly imagine her winning those Midwestern states with a Medicare for All plan with the sorts of taxes she's proposed. Well, that's that's just it, though. She's not going to tax anyone in the middle class to pay for. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> she's only going to tax the billionaires. Only the billionaires. Only the billionaires. That's how that's how all my plans are going to be. Just just the billionaires. Just the billionaires. I mean, this this was one of the this was one of the amazing things uh, about this is like, like her definition of middle class is like under a billion dollars. 
Yeah, I, like they're the middle class, so and then like the billionaires are the rich people. We're just gonna take from them. I'm willing to give her the benefit of the doubt that she kind of just had a word mishap there. But if she continues to say that she's only going to tax billionaires, then she's just lying to your face while also giving you the exact plan, specifically stating she won't just tax billionaires. So yeah. I'm sure she'll roll that statement back. I mean, you never know. You never, you know. never know. Politicians, man, they lie. They do. They lie. Um, Mexico hasn't paid for the wall yet. Really? No, they haven't. That was that didn't seem to be true either. I thought we were winning. Well, we're winning so much we're getting sick of it, but um but Mexico still doesn't pay for the wall. I think that the yeah, I, I, I think that the presidential candidates have been pretty disappointing, but I know there's one candidate that you're particularly excited about. Well, I'm excited about a couple. And he's the uh the well, he is the senior, yes, the senior senator from Colorado. Yes, you're referring to Michael Bennett. I'm referring to the one and only Senator Michael Bennett. The the wonderful Michael Bennett. Yeah. Two N's, one T? I couldn't two, tell you. Two N's, two T's? I don't know. All right. I think it's two N's. I think it's two N's and one T. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Michael Bennett. Mm-hmm. So what's great about him is he comes from a purple state. Mm-hmm. He's very moderate. Is, is Colorado really still purple? It's pretty purple. Really? I mean, for the most part. Like that whole it. area is kind of purple. It's got a purple haze, I can tell you that. <laughs> That's a good point. So, yeah, um, which is a great point to make because it shows that the people of Colorado respect personal liberty much more than the rest of the country. <laughs> but Michael Bennett is a very honest person, I would argue, and mm-hmm. He's very willing to listen to new ideas mm-hmm. and propose reasonable solutions to serious problems and actually focus on the correct problems. He's the opposite of a demagogue. Whatever yeah. whatever the word for that is, that's what he is. That's correct. I, it's difficult to envision a, a crowd of people fanatically cheering for Michael Bennett. I agree. Which which is which is a selling point. Yeah, he's uh yeah. he's not much of a populist, although the population would be better off for surrounding him <laughs> with their support. But I think he focuses on the issues that really matter. So rather than trying to give health care to every single American in an unfeasible in an impossible manner with, you know, like the medical like the Medicare for all plans, he cares about universal coverage, but he doesn't want to implement plans that plans that take away people's private health care. And he certainly won't wouldn't do it in such a way that like the Warren and Sanders plan would just destroy the markets mm-hmm. for healthcare. He focuses primarily on the issues related to child poverty, which I think is probably by far the easiest issue to uh, focus on. No one in, likes in, poor kids. Yeah, no one. You likes want kids to not be poor, but people don't really care that much about poor kids uh-huh. until you mention it. Yeah. So I think there are surveys where, like, That's if you true. don't mention poor children. No one cares about poor children. That's uh, that's interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Though that's they'll, they'll focus more on free health care, free college, which I think is just abhorrent that people think about free college before they think about child well-being. Yeah. Because if you improve the well-being of children, give them all an equal chance, then why do you need to worry about free college? They'll do what's best for themselves. Yeah, well, not to mention free college is a handout to the upper middle class. Exactly. Who are 
already doing fine. And that's what's great about Michael Bennett. Excellent transition, actually. He doesn't want to give handouts to the upper middle class or the upper class. So he's not in favor of the SALT deduction cap repeal, while his fellow Democrats are, Mm -hmm. which is literally just giving money back to extremely wealthy people in high tax states states. like new york and colorado or california yeah new jersey too yeah so Uh, he's the only democratic senator who stood up against that repeal which is very in my opinion extremely respectable does he want to does he have a stance on the mortgage deduction the mortgage interest deduction i haven't looked that deep into okay i don't know because that's another great tax code handout to the upper middle class if it's a good thing then he probably does have a good stance on it it's it it's a good thing in the sense that we have it, <laughs> but if you were going to go back and it, 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 I mean in the sense that like families depend on it, but if we were going to go back and redo it, we probably shouldn't put it in there because it uh, it's something that um, it, it's a handout to the upper middle class. It's a handout to homeowners, right? Yeah, and those are and generally we give enough of those already. Exactly. So. Um, so so you're a Michael Bennett fan. Is there any and you have some you have some. Would you call yourself Yang Curious? I'm a little Yang Curious. This is a this is a term that Yang used in the rally today. By the way, that's a wonderful term. He I, said he because he had everybody raise their hand. And he said, "Who's here because they have seen me at a speech or they've seen me on YouTube or something?" And then people raised their hand. And he said, "All you people who didn't raise your hand, you're what I like to call Yang Curious." So, I think <laughs> I donated three dollars to Yang like eight months ago. Wow! So that's a little Yang Curious. You're yeah, you're you're further in than just curious. You're so, donating money. I like Yang. I haven't thrown no money to him. <laughs> Absolutely not. Everything about Yang is pretty great, except for his primary policy focuses. So all yeah. the things he talks about. Yeah, uh, yeah. But otherwise, he has these really nuanced, unique policy proposals that don't really reside in any particular ideological camp, which you could call him a neoliberal in some sense. Because mm-hmm. you neoliberals love not being in camps. Yes. That's like your favorite thing, isn't our, it? Our camp is a non-existent camp. There you go. You're, you don't have a home in both parties, and you like it that way. Exactly. We're not zoned for homes. What if there was a... <laughs> that's a good one. What if, what if a party adopted the neoliberal platforms and you became like mainstream? Would you be a, would you be a neoliberal anymore? Absolutely. You still would? Okay. So you believe in it. You're not just being edgy. I really believe it. You really believe it. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. I, I don't know. I just I just feel like sometimes... Uh, it's just a way to be countercultural. I mean, it's a fair point. Yeah, but also consider that the term neoliberal doesn't really mean anything. Correct. It means sort of like neoconservative. Want. Yeah, it's very similar to neoconservative in that way. So, I believe very deeply that I am whatever I think a neoliberal is. Uh huh. And the closest thing you can find to that is what Twitter people think neoliberalism is. Uh huh. The people on Twitter who call themselves neoliberals. Not the academics in like the history departments. Mm-hmm. Whatever they refer to neoliberals is just, it's the boogeyman, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing about Twitter. And this is a long running um, pet peeve of mine is when people talk about Twitter as if it's representative of anything at all, because it's not. Um, Twitter has about 65 million users, active users in the United States. Which so that's you know twenty percent of our population, so not a great, not a great sample there. Eighty percent of the population doesn't use it. Not to mention, eighty uh, percent of all of the tweets on Twitter come from the top ten percent of Twitter users. 
So you could call me the Bernie Sanders of Twitter uh, because the 10 percenters control the platform. And it's 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 uh, and, and there was another study that just came out. They reported it in, in, in Axios and they said that 90 percent of political tweets on Twitter come from 10 percent of Twitter accounts. So the political discussion on Twitter is it is 90% from a sample of 10% of 20% of the population. So what does that come out to? That comes out to nothing. It comes out to this very small number of people. The top 10th of 1%? It, yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's 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 really what it is. And so, you know, when people look at Twitter and they say, you know, this is so nasty and this is representative of our country. It's not representative of our country, actually, because... Um, in nobody's right mind is that a representative sample of anything, uh, let alone of an entire country. So, is there any? So, are there any other candidates that you're that you're interested in? Yeah. So, there's one other candidate that we haven't spoken about yet, mm-hmm. and that's John Delaney. Oh, he's he's here for the Delaney. <laughs> I am a Delaney fan, hardcore. You're a Delaney fan. You're waiting for the Delaney Lanch. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> I think it's hilarious because you see, I mean, I'm going to talk about Twitter now after going on that Twitter rant, but it's funny because you see his stuff on Twitter and like people, like 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 people I know have more interactions with their tweets than him and he's like running for president. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. <laughs> I think what's what's funny about his Twitter posts is every time he posts anything, there's going to be like 30 people instantly replying saying... Or if anyone notices 30 people, if it's something controversial, they'll immediately reply, drop out, mm-hmm. which is like <laughs> the funniest thing that like these extreme left people will be like, drop out uh-huh. as if their opinion represents is like so meaningful that they get to decide who runs. What they don't realize is that if John Delaney cared if anyone supported him to run for president, we were so far past that for him. He's been running for president since the summer of 2017. Yeah, he's just doing it. He's got he, so much money, he can do it. Yeah. He he resigned from Congress in 2017 to run for president in 2020. He's been running for president. Like, like his campaign is already like a year and a half in progress by the time that um, Elizabeth Warren announced. He's already won the general election. Yeah. I mean. He's that far. Yeah. Yeah. He's really, he's, he's already there. Yeah, he's already there. Yeah, that would be interesting if if he was actually just campaigning in the future, and then like the timeline became like was like shifted back, and so he's actually yeah. So like the election has already happened, and he's already like won or something. Yeah, and we're just waiting to get there. I can't wait. Yeah, that would that would be that would be something else. No, but Delaney is actually really great. I think I would highly recommend the neoliberal podcast episode with Delaney. Okay, and you know I wasn't as fond of Delaney as I am now before I watched it. Mm-hmm. But he's really, he really thinks about these things and has nuanced positions on basically every issue. Mm-hmm. The good thing about Delaney is a similar thing that's a good thing about Yang, and I haven't seen enough of Bennett to really make this determination, but it's probably true of him as well, is when they talk, I, I don't get the sense that they hate Americans, you know? Whereas when some of these other candidates are talking, they just make it sound like Americans are just terrible people. And I'm like, I'm an American. I don't know. Why are you sounding like I'm a terrible person? Why are you sounding like all the people I know are terrible people? Um, and I get the sense from from Yang, from Bennett, from from uh, from Delaney that they like they like Americans. They just have you know different policy ideas and they got disagreements with people. 
but I think that they handle them much better than some of these other people that want to kind of lecture you on, on how terrible you are. I don't know. Yeah, and they're also open-minded people. That's, yeah, yeah, definitely. You'll see that those three in particular are the most open-minded candidates. Mm-hmm. And you can tell uh, the best the best indicator of that, I think, with Yang is his media appearances. He'll do anything. He was on he was on Ben Shapiro's podcast and The View. Do you know how many people have been on both of those? I don't think it's very many. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, I definitely think that's what makes Yang an outlier from these three. Mm-hmm. He's got this conservative support, which, mm-hmm. I mean, the other two don't have any support, so that, that's fair. <laughs> and, yet, you know, according to the betting markets, Yang's got a really good chance if you trust the betting markets. Yeah. But all those people betting yeah, tens it, of dollars. It's <laughs> just Yang fanatics driving up the price. Yeah. Which is, you know. If you got some spare money going around, you don't need to use any for any reason until the election's over mm-hmm. or till Yang drops out. Drop it on anti Yang. Uh, uh, what's the word? You know, option. Uh, yeah, the Yang no, the Yang yeah, no the option Yang no. On, on prediction. Buy Yang no. Buy Yang no is what you're saying. So, so Eight hundred dollars worth of Yang no. If you're doing, if you're doing, uh, you're doing the ratings. You say, you say buy Yang no. Yeah. Sell Yang yes. Yeah, no, what are, free what are, money. What are your other buy sells on the on the predicted markets? You got any other buy sells uh, or holds? You have any holds? Definitely don't buy Hillary Clinton. Okay. Yeah, I don't think that one's. Do gonna you think pan she's going to get in? You know, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, speaking of betting markets, I'll just say this: I have, I, I, my whole life, I haven't really been a sports fan, right? Uh, that was until I found out that you could bet massive amounts of money on sports games. And now I love it. Yeah, you can. Um, you also used to be able to bet large amounts of money on video games, in particular Counter-Strike. Really? Yeah, and people were apparently laundering money through it or something, and they've shut money it down. Money laundering through Counter-Strike? Absolutely. So ever since we like broke up the crime families in the mafia, this is how people are laundering money now? Yeah. That's, so, wow. It's a little... Yeah. Free markets, man. Yeah, it's just little paint skins on your fictional guns. That's crazy. By the way, nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We do not offer investment well, advice. Well, no, we don't. Index no, funds. No, no, no. We do no. not. We do not offer investment advice. That is a legal no, 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 can no. of worms. We're not going to get to. Read a random walk down Wall Street. That's it. Okay. Don't don't uh, don't pick stocks. You're not that good. You can talk. You'll about, never be that good. All right. You can talk about books, but whoever's, we're not. Whoever's <laughs> listening to me right now, you're not that good. All right. All right. That's fair. And and I should mention as well that um in I think this was pretty clear earlier, but Nick interns at the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. He does not speak for them. So That's a he good speaks point. for himself. So uh earlier uh I I was very I was very intentional about asking you in your opinion, uh and not in their opinion. So I just want to make it clear though that he does not speak for anyone other than himself. And I just want to be clear as well. Anything that I say, I don't even speak for myself. So I'm not even so entirely sure who's inside my head talking right now. <laughs> Thanks, Marcus. <laughs> Glad you're here, buddy. Uh, <laughs> if you are. Yeah, if, if you even are. Um, so what what is it like working at a, working at a place where you ideologically, I mean, you're working at a place where ideology is extremely important, obviously, because it's in the policy world, but you have an ideology that's different from everyone else. So what's that like? So I would argue that, it's not as important as you might think. So okay. Wikipedia and most people talking about the center will label it as a progressive think tank. And that's true because we focus primarily on low-income people. That's what makes it progressive. But I think there's a pretty good amount of diversity 
in what people think. Like there's there's quite a few people at the center who do not believe in free college and a lot of them who won't even be in favor of universal health care, Medicare for all, because they know that it's just a handout to extremely wealthy or to wealthy people, middle income people who don't need it. Mm-hmm. Well, how are they in UBI? They're not fond of it. They're not fond of They're it? They're okay. really not fond so of it. So for a similar reason as the free college, that it's too much of a handout to the um, upper middle class as opposed to the people that need the help? Exactly. Okay, interesting. I thought it was crazy that Greg Mankiw is pro-UBI now. That's a, it's definitely an interesting Greg Mankiw, the, the author of the most best-selling economics textbook. It is a best-selling economics textbook, right? Yeah, he's got a lot of money. Yeah, he's the author of the best-selling economics textbook. Professor at Harvard, he just announced on his blog um, last week that he quit the Republican Party. He was a economic advisor for President Bush. Um, he announced that he quit the Republican Party. He's now an independent. And um, is, like, in favor of Yang's freedom dividend. Yeah. This so. was, this was I, I mean, the quitting the Republican Party part, I, you know, I think most people probably... I thought weren't. that had happened with him years ago. Yeah, I, I think most people weren't surprised by that. But the but the fact that he supports UBI, I mean that that's a big that's a big move for UBI in the economics world. Yeah, so that's a really strong endorsement or implicit endorsement for Andrew Yang. I mean, mm-hmm. he name drops Andrew Yang a lot. Yeah, but uh, that's yeah, that's a powerful endorsement because it's a very well known economist. I think it's silly, and I, I mean, oftentimes I think Mankiw's a little silly. Mm-hmm. I mean, just watch the debate between uh, Greg Mankiw, uh, Larry Summers, and Emmanuel Seiss. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's it's kind of funny because you'll f- you'll have this heated exchange between uh, Saez and um, Summers. It's intense, and it's you know it's very. Summers went. Summers went crazy. He went hard. He, I mean, just <laughs> look at the thumbnail for that video, and it's just Summers' face. Yeah, so angry. It's nuts. He's and not like that normally. Yeah, he's I mean, usually a very measured guy. Yeah, yeah, but uh, he doesn't like wealth taxes. Uh, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the wealth tax because because Yang and Bennett are against the wealth tax too. Elizabeth Warren's plan is we're gonna what is it? What what is how does she she phrases it as it's a two cent tax on every dollar of wealth of people over a certain threshold, right? Isn't that what she says? Something like that. I think she actually increased it recently. Oh, did she increase it recently? I think so. Wow. Which, you know, uh, Saez and Zuckman, they refer to that as the revenue-maximizing rate. Nice. It just happens to be the revenue-maximizing rate. Ah, I see. Just very convenient. That's very convenient. Or or, or they're they're just... No, they advise both uh, Sanders and Warren. Huh, interesting. The but yeah the wealth tax it's this idea that sounds so harmless because you're like oh yeah these people have tons of money well let's just take like two cents of it but when you look at the impacts of it it would really not be it would really not be good do you want to talk about that so I'm definitely in favor of progressive taxation and taxing the wealthy yeah as, as I I mean income taxes is like a separate question from this we should we should clear not that just up income tax tons of other types of taxes that you can use. Yeah, but but we should clear that up though that this is not an income tax; this is a no. wealth tax. Yeah, it's and a, the difference between income and wealth is that income is you know a flow coming in; wealth is a stock. Yeah. Wealth is hard. Wealth is a bunch of assets that are hard to value. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, the wealth tax is meant. 
I mean, Saez and Zuckman will tell you it's meant to reduce the number of billionaires, which I'm not really against. They're, billionaires aren't a policy failure. I think in the absolute best scenario economy with all the free market uh, changes I want to make and all the redistribution I want to do, there's still going to be billionaires. And that's not a problem. I'm not necessarily against inequality. What I'm against is deprivation and people going hungry, people facing hardship that they otherwise wouldn't need to face. So I want people to meet a certain standard of living, not to be more equal, right? Mm-hmm. I don't, the Gini coefficient doesn't tell you everything you need to know about your society. But back to the wealth tax, it's just not the best way to provide to to get the revenue revenue you need to help people in lower income levels there are other ways to do it without so many distortions i mean the biggest argument that summers will make is that if you tax wealth people will stop holding their assets in savings and so on you know useful investments and instead they'll just donate their money to you know other institutions that have an effect on our society He'll, they'll basically just use their money to, for special interests and so on and so forth, just, which is the opposite of what Saez and Zuckman want. So you've got to think about the incentives associated with a wealth tax. Also, a lot of the arguments that Saez and Zuckman make are based on questionable public finance theories, if you want to call them that. I mean, they basically do away with the concept of tax incidents. It's just shocking. And uh, one, one of the underlying assumptions of, a, of a, uh, any, any tax policy like that is that it just assumes that whatever the government is going to be using that revenue for is uh, more, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, more coordinating or more um, beneficial to society or more efficient or whatever than whatever it would have done, uh, you know, in their bank account or loaned out to some uh, investor or something like that. It just assumes the government would know better one specific thing, which uh, we have no reason to presume. And we actually perhaps have reason to presume that they would know less. And I agree with you, 100%. I, I definitely don't think, especially with the Warren tax plan and the Medicare for All proposals, that we'll be using this revenue efficiently at all. Yeah. It's just such a waste of money when... You know, you could uh, pass the American Family Act and, you know, reduce child poverty by 40%, as yeah. Michael Bennett wants to do. What's, what's, what's in the American Family Act? It's an expansion of the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit oh, okay. and a bunch of other little nuanced things. Mm-hmm. So it's specifically designed to help people, uh, lower income people, which yeah. would be a much better use. An important thing you got to remember with the wealth tax, too, is it's very, very, very likely, and and I'm talking pretty much... It's really hard to find a way to make it constitutional. <laughs> it is very, very likely unconstitutional. I, it's difficult to imagine a court accepting an argument uh, that you have a tax policy that specifically targets a group of people. Um, we don't, we don't do that. Um, yeah. and, and, and and it's we make we made a, an exception to the Constitution's prohibition on direct taxes to allow the income tax when we pass the Sixteenth Amendment. Um, but this is this is a whole new exception. So we would likely need another constitutional amendment in order to make it actually happen. 
because you could challenge it on constitutional grounds and probably win. Yeah, that's correct. So the income tax, I'm not against it at all. I, th- I think it's good. There, there are other ways that you want to tax people as well. Mm-hmm. But the wealth tax, I mean. Here's, here's one thing that I want to talk about is how familiar are you with the land the land tax? So Georgist. I'm not a Georgist yet. You're not a Georgist yet. See, here's the thing. It's it's a um uh it's kind of a it's kind of a secret in the tax economics community that every tax economist is a closet Georgist. But no one wants to admit it because the people who like are really gung ho about the land tax are pretty weird. But um it's as far as taxation goes it's probably the least distortionary tax you can have. Um, it's the broadest base possible because it's literally the ground. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of... And, and, and you can't, you can't like, hide it. You can't hide your land. You can't, you know, you can't avoid that. You can't dodge a tax on land. You can't hide it in a bank account in the Cayman Islands. You can't do it. It's land. It's just right there. Yeah, so I haven't read too much about land value taxes. But, I mean... There's also an argument that it would lead to more efficient use of land, right? I believe that is an argument people make, yeah. That sounds like a good argument because I'm very passionate about inefficient use of land. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what people might find weird about me because I often talk about how upsetting it is that we aren't living in 200-story buildings with a bunch of nice you know, public transit systems. Yeah. We just have terrible zoning in the United States. Mm -hmm. And... It's basically a subsidy for single-family houses or the people who already own them mm-hmm. so they can sell them later or just have high property values. But, yeah, in a in a different world, we'd have a more free, uh, you know, zoning system and people would build tall, taller buildings. I mean, just look at D.C. Mm-hmm. It's awful. There's a height restriction, isn't there? Oh, yeah, yeah, there's a and height restriction. It just looks so silly. Yeah. I mean, if we really need to... Increase the height of the Capitol building. Just, you know, make it, it taller. It actually isn't from the, uh, it's not from any landmark or anything. No, it's not? No, it's not even based well, on that. If, if that makes it more politically feasible, yeah. just make the the Washington Monument, you know, a thousand feet tall. I don't even know how tall that is, but yeah. like, as tall as you need it to be. That would be, you know, that'd be like a hundred stories. So it's taller than that. Taller Three than times that. that. Okay. We need taller buildings in D.C. There's no reason we shouldn't have taller buildings. And I'm, and then you look across the river in Rosslyn, and there they all are. Yeah, you know? tall buildings. <laughs> there they all are. There's all the tall buildings, yep. Yeah, so the, the lack of density in the United States' most urban areas is just awful. It's I will say, though, this is a regional problem. Yes. Uh, because I'm from Wisconsin. In Milwaukee, my, um, I was just looking at this the other day. Because you look at apartments around here, right, and the apartments in the suburbs out here are still, you know, ridiculously expensive. You go all the way out to Manassas, and they're still, you know, the prices are still 60% of what they are in in the city. And when you look at the city of Milwaukee, which I just did the other day, you do the same thing. The price of an apartment in Manassas, okay— is about the same as the price of an apartment in the heart of downtown Milwaukee. And the price, and then if you get 20 minutes outside of the city, prices are half what they are downtown. 
Um, and that's what more American cities are like than not. Uh, the, the problems are really bad in California and in Washington, D.C. and in New York City in that area. And those are the most important cities. Yeah, and those are, you know, those are, yeah, exactly. And so that's the thing about it that's so weird, though, because people who, who you know, that's all that they know, they look at this and they assume that everything's like that. But most of the rest of this country is not like that. I and mean, even big cities like, you know, Houston's not like that. Uh, Houston, but Houston also has, compared to other cities, has unrestrictive zoning. They have a lot more freedom in their zoning. And that has allowed them to be more creative in their in the way that they lay out their city. But so, so yeah, zoning deregulation is one of those policies that, I, if you can even refer to it as a policy, it's more of a pipe dream. Mm-hmm. It, it I find extremely important, especially if you pair it with a bunch of other policies. I also like like free migration and redistribution and so forth because, for one, the dead weight loss associated with these zoning restrictions all throughout the country is massive mm-hmm. it's i think it's greater than the dead weight loss associated with tariffs we have mm-hmm. just generally speaking my, like, my thing with the zoning stuff though like you said it, i think you're pretty correct in saying it's a pipe dream because when you look at the incentives involved the the people who support it are the people who own the property yes yeah. so you know i mean you could say it's bad you can say it's bad but they do own the property you know, it's it's their property, um, and the the issue I think is even if you even if you repealed all the zoning restrictions, I think people would make their own, you know, quasi governmental organizations on their own in their neighborhoods and say we don't want st- we don't want this built here we don't want this built here kind of you know a super homeowners association, and I think they would make that anyway because every everyone doesn't like the zoning of a neighborhood except like you know the people who own property in the neighborhood. Yeah, so I want to take power away from the people. Okay. Basically. Okay. People should be, well, and also give it back to the people. But from property owners? Property owners, well, think about it. When you have zoning restrictions, it's some property owners having more control over their property and other people's property than they should, right? Mm -hmm. People shouldn't be able to decide what others do with their property to an extent, right? So there's an extent to an extent is carrying a lot of weight there there's an extent to which you have to you know deal with externalities but the externality associated with like oh i don't like the way this you know apartment building looks in my neighborhood or oh this apartment building this blah 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 business or so on decreases my property values you don't have a property right to your property value right you don't you don't have the right to protect the value in and of itself despite the fact that you do have a right to, you know, not face certain externalities from other property owners. What do you think about this, Marcus? Well, actually, I was going to ask you guys a separate but related question. Speaking of uh, kooky uh, land tax advocates, right? Do you guys have any thought on the recent book Radical Markets by Weiland Posner? I haven't read the book. I don't read books nearly as often as I do, but I did see uh, Glenn Wiles speak at the Mercatus Center a couple of weeks ago, and I thought that was pretty great. So wh- what what do you talk about? I'm not familiar with this book at all. I'm just going to be honest. That makes me a bad podcast host, but I have no idea. So what's it about? I couldn't tell you. Glenn Wiles was just talking about a bunch of interesting stuff. Oh, he wasn't talking about the book? He wasn't like selling the book? Not exactly. He was talking about labor markets more, more particularly, I think. 
So basically, they advocate for this really, really strange policy. They advocate for maybe five, six different policies in the book. Just very, very strange policies. But the main one is what they call a cost, which I forget. I forget. It's an acronym for something. But basically, the way that it would work is imagine everyone has an app, and everything that you own is on this app, right? And all of your property is up on a perpetual auction. So you self-value all of your goods at some at some rate, right? And then people basically um, auction or they, they'll they, it's a perpetual auction for all of your goods. So your house is always for sale. Yeah. So right? I've I've heard of this concept before. In fact, I'm going to give a shout out to one of my favorite econ professors here, Jeff Bridges, J.D. Bridges. Um, Not to be confused with Jeff Bridges, the actor. Yes, he's much better. Yeah. Um. He's the one who first just sort of jokingly told me I didn't know that Wow was actually in favor of this. It's kind of silly, but it is really fascinating because it encourages you to not undervalue your assets because if you do, people will immediately buy them up Mm -hmm. and then sell them at a higher price. Mm -hmm. So under that scheme, more people will qualify for Warren's wealth tax, wouldn't they? (laughs) Um, That's Yeah, I mean, that's true. So so you can... So let me illustrate. You can set the price of your stuff whatever, at whatever you want. So so you never, there is no like, so like how so how is there a market price for it then? If if you're setting it at whatever you want. Well, to, to be clear, the way that that it would work is you set a minimum price, right? So that's the minimum of the market, and then um, the market will bid up over that, and then you can say, okay, well, if you just don't want to sell something, just set the price to six kajillion dollars or whatever. But the the price that you self-assess at is related to the tax rates. So all taxes would be scrapped and replaced with property tax based on how you self-assess your own the value of your own property. So is that that's the upward check? Yes. Okay. Huh. I don't know. Um. So so if you if you get to set the minimum, so that's a price floor, right? So it's a price floor. So yeah. you, you basically everyone has price control power. And this is like the, isn't that what it is? No, because it's it's on a specific good. It's the good that you own. You we, you basically already have this in the sense that there's a minimum buying price. You have some minimum buying price. Like I won't sell my labor for, um, or a minimum selling price in this case it is more. So I I I won't sell my labor for uh, less than ten dollars an hour or something like that because I can get a better job somewhere else. Okay, that makes okay that makes more sense because okay, so there's not. There's not a market because it's only one thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so wh- how would that work then for corporations, for example? Do they get to set the price floor on everything they own as well? Or is this just for individuals? I don't know. It's just a chapter in a book. <laughs> I mean, the okay. concept works kind of universally. It's just a, a two-way sort of incentive to prevent people from overvaluing things, because why would they, for one? And they'll just pay higher property taxes. Uh, and undervaluing because if they value it too low, people will just buy it off them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, um, the issues with the idea is that first, I think there's probably a lot of weird transaction costs associated with that because one, you'll probably have an increased like p- people are probably really bad at valuing things. Yeah, I couldn't even. I can't even think of what I would value yeah. like things I own at. I couldn't tell you what my phone is worth. Yeah, I have no but idea. I, I've got. A, pretty strong feeling that i'll value it too low and then someone will buy it 
mm-hmm. grow value at too high and be paying too much. And I guess you can adjust that. But then if you make the wrong adjustment, your phone's gone, mm-hmm. right? Your car is gone. And What's what the problem this is supposed to solve? Or is this purely just a thought experiment? Their idea is that they're really big on, they consider all property a simple form of monopoly, especially with relative to land. Because it's basically, it's similar to what you were saying. Oh, is is it just like a market? It, well, not exactly because it's like one good with many, 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 many substitutes. But this house in this la- la- latitude and longitude, there is no substitute for that latitude and longitude. So they're taking a lot of inspiration from Henry George. One of the more interesting caveats that they add is they recognize, okay, there might be certain things that um, people... Uh, value uniquely or that they want to keep secret like a diary or something like that or a family heirloom so they propose okay well there's going to be some kind of um, heirloom system where for certain goods people can get um, reduced tax rates and then when I first read that I went oh wow (laughs) then then this whole new political market comes in right special interest for who gets heirloom heirloom prices on what that and the other so i imagined like let's say there's a church that's really poor they don't have anyone else in their denomination they just split off from a larger denomination they don't have a coalition to defend the um heirloom of their church right the i'm i presume churches start to get taxed in this new system right so then all of a sudden the, their their church finance their finance meetings are all about oh are we're, we're gonna set the organ like we're just gonna like look value the organ much low to like get through this period we don't have to pay as much taxes and then shoot it up Uh, everything everyone's going to be obsessed with this self-assessing thing it's just going to get kind of ridiculous yeah it seems like it would be a really weird game that like you said opens up to so many different rent-seeking opportunities like um i can see people right now fighting for like heirloom status for like mercedes cars Mm -hmm. because you know they're exotic foreign things that we should protect right or something like that like you could totally see the argument for this right like oh that's an heirloom like i really like this thing you know um so yeah i don't know that's that's wild though i, I it's one of those things that g- it gets you thinking gets yeah, you thinking definitely gets you thinking definitely gets you thinking even if it's a terrible idea uh-huh. it's a cool terrible idea i think that's a great way to end this podcast a cool terrible idea i have so, a lot of those yeah okay well that's good well thank you so much for being here nick i appreciate yeah, it's it it's been great all right, uh, Loose Vegan Indeterminate is a production of the Economic Society at George Mason University in conjunction with the wonderful folks at WGMU. Special thanks to General Manager Henry Fisher, Production Director Grace Snyder, and Faculty Advisor Roger Smith. You can follow the Economic Society on Twitter. Our handle is at EconSocietyGMU. To see our blog or upcoming events, you can find us on the web at go.gmu.edu slash econsociety. And before I do the final outro, I should mention as well, this podcast is now available on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Radio Public. If you've heard of Radio Public and you use it, that's awesome. I've never heard of it. Um, But we are on it now, so it's very exciting. We are on there, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And we're hoping to be on a couple other platforms in the future too, so stay tuned. Uh, So until next time, abstain from that which is another's, make a becoming use of that which is your own, and whatever you do, don't be a man of system. Catch you next time on Loose Vegan Indeterminate.